For many Canadians, January marks a time when they reconsider their relationship with alcohol. But looking beyond dry January, is alcohol consumption in Canada something to be worried about? I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to discuss why Canadians may be re-evaluating their drinking, who is actually drinking more, and how doctors are being encouraged to broach the subject with their patients. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and even tell your friends about the show. So Sharon, as of this recording, we're sitting down to talk. We're just a few days into January, and for many, it's referred to as dry January, the subject of alcohol consumption on a lot of people's minds of late. Um, and before we talk about some of the issues around alcohol, looking at dry January as a, as a thing that people do, why do people opt to partake in the event or, or what's the thinking behind it? Yeah. Dry January or dry February. You know, some people prefer February because it has fewer days in the month, but, um, but yeah, dry January has become, you know, really quite popular over the years. It was started years ago, uh, back in 2012 in the UK by a group called Alcohol Change and that was uh, their British charity and they you know they pitched dry January as a total mind and body reset you know the idea is that by not drinking alcohol for the entire month of January it gives people time to you know consider or reflect on on how much they normally drink and whether they might you know benefit from drinking less so you know, some people see it as this way of detoxing after the holidays, but, you know, it's not really a detox. The liver takes, you know, longer than a month to recover from, say, heavy bouts of drinking. And and it's not really meant for people with, you know, serious drinking problems who need, you know, more intense interventions. But, you know, regular drinkers who abstain from alcohol for a month, you know, they, they can see improvements in their health. And, and there is some research to suggest it can lead to people drinking less, you know, or at least, you know, drinking less harmful amounts for, you know, several months out. So like six to eight months after dry January. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you talk about people may notice some changes to their health if they decide, well, I'm going to stop drinking for a period, or they may drink less long-term if they, if they decide to take a kind of a month long pause, are there benefits to taking a month off alcohol for people's health? Not in the detox sense. Cause as you mentioned, the liver does a lot of that work for us, but, but what benefits could people see from, from not drinking for a month? Well, you know, there seem to be quite a few. There have been studies, you know, since they've had dry January months, people have been doing studies looking at, you know, really what impact does it have by stopping booze for a month. So, you know, studies have found a lot of like what you might expect, you know, people have better sleep, they have more energy, they feel more focused during the day. Um, one study saw that people, you know, experienced weight loss, I think they lost around two kilograms in a month. So that's, you know, not insignificant. Um, they've shown decreases in blood pressure, lower cholesterol, you know, better skin. They, they even saw in one study that people had decreases in growth factors or, or proteins that have been linked to certain cancers. So, you know, it's not known, you know, how long those benefits last. And, you know, it's unlikely they'd really, you know, mean any meaningful differences in, in a person's health if they go back to drinking 
the way they did before. But, you know, like I mentioned, many people do seem to drink less in the months after dry January. So, so you know, maybe it does provide a kind of reset, you know, for your relationship with alcohol. Have we noticed that at all that dry January, you know, may give people an indication that they're, that they're drinking overall poses a problem that they kind of get a sense that, wow, my relationship with alcohol isn't exactly the healthiest. And I kind of discovered that by taking a month off it. Yeah. I mean, you're right because people, People with drinking problems might experience, you know, if they go into dry January, they might experience really serious symptoms of withdrawal, you know, like seizures or there's something called delirium tremens, which is, you know, really a spike in blood pressure and people can experience hallucinations and vomiting and really awful, unpleasant symptoms. There was a, an interview I read in the Washington Post recently with an addictions doctor who said, you know, most people who try dry January, they won't develop withdrawal symptoms, though people who do drink, you know, daily could be at risk. So so I guess a message from him was that anyone who's worried, you know, that they might experience withdrawal symptoms should should maybe talk to their doctor before they try something like like dry January. Yeah. And when we talk about alcohol consumption in general, it feels like we're seeing a shift in thinking around it. As you mentioned, dry January has been around for about 12 years now. And you also mentioned talk about the cancer risk. And I, I get the sense that more people are talking about kind of the longer term risks of regular drinking. Is there a broad mind shift about alcohol and its place in our lives? Well, you know, some go dry all year, right? Some, some of the most one of the most recent figures I saw was that about 23% of Canadian adults don't don't drink at all. You know, on the other hand, about half of us, half half of Canadian adults drink more than the amount recommended in Canada's most recent guidance on booze. Those those guidelines, suggest, uh, which were released back in June, uh, January, you know, they suggested we limit alcohol intake to two drinks a week, which is hugely different than the previous guidelines. I mean, the old guidelines from 2011 said women should limit their intake to two drinks a day or 10 a week and men three per day or 15 per week. Um, so, you know, the authors, when they released those guidelines said, you know, the science has evolved since 2011, you know, more evidence shows that no amount of no amount of alcohol or no kind of alcohol, not even you know red wine, which we always thought was good for the heart. They argue that you know no amount is good for your health, and that that anything more than two drinks a week increases the risk of certain cancers, like you know breast cancer and colon cancer. You know, seven or more a week hikes your risk of heart disease and stroke. Um, you know, when those guidelines came out, you know, a lot of critics said. You know, these are puritanical killjoys that, that you know, it's going way too far. Um, and that, you know, some pointed out that those recommendations were based on like 16 out of 6,000 studies that were initially screened. So not a really strong evidence base for some of the critics. So, but, you know, still the number of people engaging in heavy drinking, so which is defined as five or more drinks for men or four drinks or more for women on one occasion at least once a month, that heavy drinking is really at its lowest level since 2015. So, and, you know, and polls suggest that people are more inclined to drink alcohol in moderation. Um, you know, for example, they alternate the, you know, one alcohol drink with water or 
uh, you know, one drink of alcohol, one non-alcoholic drink if they're at a social event. But, you know, we do drink more. Canadians do drink more than than the global average and even even more than the average for for high income countries. So, you know, it's still a part of our our everyday lives, especially so during the early days of COVID when alcohol sales, you know, really, really spiked. So, you know, in fact, the stats can figure I saw said that the amount of alcohol sold in 2021, so the first real year of COVID was the equivalent of like nearly 10 drinks per week for every Canadian of every legal drinking age. Wow. So, you know, like enough to fill 1,200 Olympic-sized pools, according to StatsCan. So although we are sort of more people are, are really looking at the relationship with alcohol, it's still very much ingrained in our culture. We'll be right back. COVID was, was definitely an interesting time when you, we saw a lot of people who maybe had too much time on their hands or maybe were, were struggling with some depression or mental health challenges related to the pandemic and, and decided to turn to alcohol. Um, are we seeing that there are groups that are, that are cutting back or, or are there groups that are going in the opposite direction and, and we're seeing an increase in, in drinking in those, in those groups. Yeah. Younger kids, well, kids, younger adults, people aged 18 to 34, they're, they're still the group, you know, most likely to report being heavy drinkers, but, but the rate of heavy drinking among younger Canadians and like among that cohort is like almost a third lower than it was in, in 2015. And that generation, that of 18 to 34s, they're drinking less than the generations before them. So like me, the baby boomers, you know, the baby boomers tend to drink more than the Gen Xs or millennials, you know, the generations that followed the boomers. And, and you know, the number or proportion of, you know, 65 and older who report having heavy drinking is also rising. And the other group drinking more, of course, is women. We're reading a lot and hearing a lot more about that. There is a study released earlier this year in the U.S. that found alcohol-related deaths are rising faster among men than, among women than men. You know, there was this really alarming headline that said more women are drinking themselves to death. So that's worrisome, you know, and studies have found that women are drinking not only more often, but when they when they drink, they're drinking larger amounts, including binge drinking, than in the past. So that, you know, that could explain, of course, the rising rates of, of conditions like cirrhosis among women. Are there specific dangers for women when it comes to alcohol, either in, you know, that that may pose a greater risk to them? Well, you know, we process it differently, right? Booze hits us harder than it does men. It, you know, if you drink in that court, quote, moderate risk zone, so meaning, you know, more than six drinks per week, the health risks increase more steeply for women than men. And and that's because of like, there's lots of biological factors to blame, right? Things like, you know, lean body weight, women have produced lower levels of enzymes that help, you know, metabolize or break down alcohol. Um, so there's more kind of byproducts that linger in our body longer than men. And, you know, those biological factors mean that we get higher blood alcohol levels, we get intoxicated faster, and all of that means more risk for problems like, you know, breast cancer or liver damage. Looking at, at 
drinking that perhaps goes beyond moderation into problem drinking or or alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, depending on, on the term that you may use, is there still a stigma in talking about it that can make it hard for people to identify that they actually may have a disorder? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was speaking last week with Jurgen Rehm, who's this senior scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And he said, you know, alcohol use disorder is one of the most stigmatized of all mental health disorders. And that stigma just persists. Um, you know, and too many people still see it as this sign of a, a moral weakness, right, or a moral failing, which is interesting given, you know, the huge role alcohol plays in our culture. Um, you know, Dr. Beam said it's almost like this schizophrenic relationship we have with booze. Uh, you know, and people struggling with alcohol, you know, they can kind of internalize that public stigma, right? So it becomes kind of this self-stigma. Um, I remember watching an interview recently with Matthew Perry, who who described being, you know, on the set of Friends when he was, you know, heavily, heavily using alcohol and other drugs. And he's described wondering to himself, like looking at his castmates, you know, why is it just me? You know, why do I have this disease and not them? You know, and we've used words like alcoholic and drunk, you know. So we've made some headway in reducing the stigma around things like depression, but I think we've got a ways to go when it comes to drinking. Now, is it something that doctors are being encouraged to raise with their patients? And how do they broach that discussion without coming across as though they're insinuating that someone who doesn't have a problem may have a problem? And how do they kind of break that awkwardness? Yeah, it's tricky. So yeah, there's this new guideline out to doctors encouraging family doctors and primary care clinicians like nurse practitioners to talk to their patients, like to actually screen them at least once a year for alcohol use. And that, it's tricky because, you know, doctors historically don't like to bring it up. People don't like to talk about it. This sort of this, this, this implicit understanding that that's just something we don't talk about. But, you know, this new guideline says basically everyone over 15 should be asked annually about their alcohol use. You know, the problem is that we have treatments, right? We have proven treatments, including prescription medications that can help reduce, you know, heavy drinking and alcohol use disorder, but they're seriously underused. And partly because doctors aren't aware of them and people don't know that they're available, you know, to help. So there's this, you know, tremendous amount of unmet need out there. And and one way to get people help faster is by asking them about their alcohol use, you know, and hoping they'll be honest and open about it. And and if there's a problem, you know, the doctor and patient working together to set goals, you know, help the person manage their drinking, whether that's, you know, stopping altogether or just cutting back. But but working together on some kind of treatment plan and 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 hopefully, you know, reduce the incidence of, of alcohol use disorder. Are there indications people should be aware of that may kind of say to them, look, you're, <laughs> you, you may have a, an, an issue with alcohol and perhaps you should talk to your doctor? Yeah, like as part of this, this guideline, they distributed to doctors sort of this sample interview questions and it comes from the DSM which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So it's, you know, psychiatry's diagnostic manual. So they'll, the questions are things like, did you drink more or for longer time than you'd originally planned to? Have you tried to cut back or stop drinking, but you know, you're not able to? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about drinking or recovering from drinking? You know, have you been 
so preoccupied with wanting a drink that you found it hard to think about anything else. Like there's 11 criteria and, you know, whether you have, you know, mild, moderate or severe alcohol use disorder depends on how many of those criteria you answer yes to. So, but there are definitely, if you you can go online, you can look at that, that sample interview question that people can sort of look through themselves and, you know, if they have to start checking off more than one or two boxes, it might be you know, reason for concern. Mm-hmm. Well, I know it's an important discussion, even if it's one that people may be reluctant to have. Sharon, thanks for your time. Hey, my pleasure, Dave. Thanks so much. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.